0: And welcome to another episode of Muslim Money, where we talk about everything and anything related to Muslims and money. Uh, we're here again with the amazing man himself, Hassan Jivraj. What's going on, brother?
1: Hi, salamu Alaikum.
0: Thank you so much to have you back on on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Hassan, this is the second time um, you've been on the show, but for our listeners, I'm just going to read your bio again, because the last episode we spoke in Arabic, so I, I'm not sure, for those of you who don't speak Arabic, I don't know if you would have... Well, uh, we, we, we try around, to speak
1: Arabic. <laughs> we're
0: trying, we're trying really hard, butchering it, but um, but I think I think we, uh, we, did, we did the best we can.
1: I'm sure the Arabic speakers out there would
0: forgive us. <laughs> yeah, 100%, 100%. So, Hassan is a London-based freelance financial journalist, primarily covering... Middle East and Debt Capital Markets, Islamic Finance and Political Economy. Hassan's previous experience includes working with DebtWire, IHS, Country Risk and Global Capital. Mm. He holds an MA in Middle East Studies from King's College, London and a BA Mm. in International Business with Arabic from the University of Westminster. During his BA, he spent one academic year abroad studying Arabic at the University of Damascus. He has travelled across the MENA region, including all of the GCC countries, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco and Lebanon. Hello, Sahel and Hassan. Thank you very
1: Hello much. Hello, Thank you so much. Thank you for that kind introduction.
0: All right, so Hassan, I w- I really want to chat to you around your not in your extensive knowledge of the Islamic finance industry more broadly, mm-hmm. or, or maybe we can actually start with that and and just kind yeah. of, if I can just get your general thoughts. But I, I'm really interested in the current UK situation because you know, as you know, I've, I've written that book about you know comparison between Australia yes. Islamic finance yeah. and, Australia and the UK, and when I went and did research there, it was probably about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't worked in the industry at that time. I was a fresh uh, kind of PhD student, just running around um, visiting all this New York and stuff like that. So I got a real a kind of broad experience i interviewed a lot of sheikh and um mm. industry players and 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 just mm-hmm. people interacting with the industry but i'd really love your insights on how it has gone or progressed or hasn't progressed There's a lot a lot has changed since then so mm-hmm. um i want to circle back to that so but i guess to begin with can i just get your thoughts you know on on the Islamic finance industry as a, as a whole because you've got such incredible experience and you know given coronavirus and 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 mm-hmm. how things have slowed down a bit What's your sense of the industry as it currently stands?
1: So my sense of the industry, well, I've been in the industry for, for about coming up to nine years now. Um, so I've seen the growth from, to say, 2000, late 2012, 2013 uh, till, till now. And it's, it's definitely been an interesting journey. And the, the industry at the moment is kind of at an interesting place. And I, I, I see it as, as a positive and improving picture. As we come out of the pandemic, um, I don't think it's going to be equal in all jurisdictions uh, in terms of growth and development. Um, but I, I'm, I'm overall I'm optimistic on the Islamic finance industry globally. Um, but obviously, there are different like areas of the world which is probably which is probably going to see more growth and more development, uh, as well as introduction into new jurisdictions, which will try to which are trying to introduce Islamic finance or Islamic banking services. And do
0: and you get the sense that? Applies also for the Islamic economy in a general sense, like the the broader Islamic economy, If you talk about hospitality, so fashion, we,
1: we, we talk about Hispanics. when we when when we talk about Islamic economy, we talk about this three trillion or four trillion dollar industry. Um, however, unfortunately, it's a very fragmented. Uh, uh, it's a it's a very fragmented thing. Uh, if you if you do a bit of research and study the numbers a little bit, unfortunately, the majority of the this. Three four trillion dollar industry is concentrated heavily concentrated in Islamic banking, mm. um, and in sukuk, so which is like the equivalent of Islamic bonds, uh, or, or debt if you want to just call it.
0: And even there's a lot of questions around the, you know, how they calculate that, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, even that. That's, to... that's not there's that, that, that is that um there are a lot of differences in uh in different regions um. Uh, for example, in Malaysia, the market is very sophisticated and quite developed and quite deep. Whereas, if you compare it to other countries, it's not as sophisticated or as deep as Malaysia. So it's a mixed picture across the board uh, with regards to where the industry is where the industry is at at this current point in time. But I think it's at a, it's a, at a really interesting time, given the developments in specific key specific Islamic finance markets like the UAE, for example.
0: And you and you find the you know it's still Malaysia, UAE. You know Saudi kind of kind of driving the the growth
1: absolutely absolutely I think uh, the main obviously the main drivers are countries like um, Malaysia Saudi Arabia as you mentioned Malaysia Saudi Arabia the UAE Qatar Bahrain um so all the Gulf countries Malaysia and uh, also Indonesia's uh catching up catching yeah. up there um, I heard
0: you, you recently wrote an article on on um one of the indonesian banks opening up in-
1: that's right yeah yeah so um was one of the one of the i think bank sharia from Indo- indonesia is gonna be opening up a, a office in the uae very soon uh, i think they're in discussions at the moment for for a license that's actually huge uh, if you think about it well yeah it is i mean given the size of the the, the bank sharia in indonesia uh, i think may bank islamic which is obviously from malaysia did the similar thing uh, in 2018 by applying for its bank, banking license in the UAE. But it took them... It took I, them I think a, a, few a few of them had... A,
0: a, that. CIMB also had a, a a presence there probably around 2015, I think. I'm not sure if they're still there.
1: I don't, I don't know if CIMB still have an office or a presence in the UAE, but uh, I, I know that they were you know, trying to look to enter the market at, at some period of time over the last, say, no, no, that
0: I remember they were, they were definitely there. I, we'll have to hit up our, our contacts there.
1: Um, but, yeah, I mean... Um, so, yeah, in rela- I, I think the industry is at an interesting place at, at the moment. Um, but, yeah, we can talk about, like, specific countries. Like, I, I don't think uh, we can talk about it. Like, we have to talk about it in very, like, specific cases yeah. of where yeah. the industry is. And, well, and, and,
0: and, so you have a lot of the new countries, you know, a lot of the Stan countries taking interest.
1: Absolutely, in. absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of development in countries like um, Uzbekistan over the last couple of years. I mean, Uzbekistan is a very interesting case in the sense that since 2017, with the new president, yeah, um, they've been looking to open up their economy. So you know they've removed a lot of the, they've changed a lot of the laws. So for example, ca- capital controls are no longer in Uzbekistan, um, mm-hmm. and they're opening up the economy slowly. And they definitely see Islamic finance as a key part of that opening up of yeah. their economy. Interesting. Um, and yeah, similarly, other countries like Kazakhstan, which has been working for for a long for a while on its um, laws and infrastructure, uh, financial infrastructure to facilitate Islamic finance.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I hear a lot of uh, discussion around Sukuk bonds. Is it mainly in the capital market space that they're focusing on or?
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of the Sukuk is still very highly concentrated in the capital market space and in the institutional space um, and then the sovereign space. I mean, um, for these
0: countries, the, the, the Kazakhstan. Oh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. The, 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 I think the, the Sukuk is for these kind of countries, it's similar to their Eurobond uh, play. So, if you look at, for example, Uzbekistan has issued, I think, two or three eurobonds over the last couple of years, mm. and some of their state entities are now beginning to issue conventional bonds. Uh, and then once they've, you know, done that litmus test in testing the eurobond market, then they'll obviously will try and test the sukuk market. Um, but yeah, that, this is this is uh, kind of a, a way for to attract foreign investment from OIC countries.
0: Yeah, so, interesting. What about the non-Muslim countries? You're still seeing a
1: bit of interest uh, from them? I mean, yes, we we are seeing interest from certain non-Muslim jurisdictions. I think it's not going to be like the year 2014, where we saw many non-Muslim jurisdictions issuing sukuk. And I think it's going to be a very uh, mixed bag, if I want to call it that, like that. Um, So you'll see certain funds being launched or certain products being launched. But I don't see it as a... You know, flurry of applications coming from you know, say the UK or like Luxembourg or any of these other countries. I,
0: I think it's almost as if they all had a crack just to kind of show that they're interested. So like Singapore, Hong Kong, the UK, or like all those countries, and then it's been a bit of a trickle. Like I don't think there hasn't been another one from Singapore uh, from my knowledge. Um, uh, but I, well, Hong, Hong well, Kong's I, issued like three, I, so, I think.
1: So Hong Hong Kong has issued the one in two thousand fourteen. I think you know they've they've been through some challenges since 2014 in Hong Kong, um, both oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. economically. So I think that's played a role. Um, I think with with regards to um, other countries, I think, uh, you know, the cost and the time of issuing Sukuk you know, compared to, say, a conventional eurobond or other kind of conventional instrument, uh, you know, they don't really see the economic sense. Uh, yeah. They don't see it as an economic uh, play for them. Um, I mean so it's it, kind I, of this, I,
0: this, this you know every now and then they'll issue not it's not a kind of a regular it wouldn't feature as one of their like kind of regular offerings
1: no no it's not it's it's not part of their like like their regular funding strategy regular issuances. Uh, yeah it's not no, unfortunately no I don't think we're going to see that um, in countries like the UK um, or um, Luxembourg or you know, there was talk of um, you know other countries such as Italy and Ireland um, and even Belgium, you know, updating their laws to introduce sukuk, uh, both at the sovereign level, or quasi-sovereign level, or corporate level. But yeah, I don't, I don't see that changing in the in the near future, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a lot of work from the Australian experience. Like, there's so much that needs to be done before you can just get parity, and um, and then there's the question of you know pricing, like. You know, someone like Australia, for example, AAA-rated country, will we get, you know, similar pricing in the, Australian, um, in the Islamic markets? There's always a question that...
1: Well, the, the, the problem here is that, well, the thing here is that it's uh, there's plentiful already conventional and it's accessible and it's, you know, quick and it's cheaper to do right. conventional than to do Islamic uh, or Sharia-compliant. Even, even if you take countries like Turkey, for example, it took Turkey a long, long time to come into the Sukuk market. I think they only issued their first Sukuk in 2010, or 2012, mm. so they they're not they haven't been in the Sukuk market for like a very long time, and part of the part of the problem that Turkey had at the time, and also I think other countries, including OIC IC countries, have is the taxation legislation. Yeah, um, is a big challenge for them. The things like double taxation, stamp duty, um, depending on the structure of the Sukuk, and also, don't forget a lot of countries that don't follow common law. Uh, some which are more like like French that carry like French law or civil yeah, law. Yeah. Uh, so the, the treatment of like your ijara assets is a lot, you know, it can get quite complicated. That's complicated. So if you look at a country like Morocco, for example, you know, there was, of, there was a lot of optimism in 2018 when Morocco issued its first sovereign sukuk, although it was a Moroccan uh denominated sukuk. It received a lot of fanfare and it was a very successful transaction. But since then, we haven't really seen anything from Morocco in the... Islamic in the Sukuk space uh, for various reasons, but I think one of the primary reasons is that the, the legal infrastructure in Morocco doesn't facilitate or doesn't make it easy to facilitate Islamic uh, transactions
0: mm. can we move to the u k you know that has the fSA is it still called the FSA?
1: It's called the FCA. FCA. F- FCA. FCA. Yeah, Financial Conduct Authority.
0: Uh, it, it was. A, it was a while since I did, FSA was. was
1: yeah, yeah. It was there a while a while back?
0: Yeah. Um. You know, and I and, and comparing with Australia, like Australia has done basically nothing to amend tax laws to facil- facilitate Islamic financing, and I, I really appreciate like the amount of work that has gone in in, in Australia and lobbying and to really get nowhere it makes me really appreciate what's been done in the UK. And I remember when I did research there, probably about. Going back in maybe 12 years now or even mm. even longer, it was mm. that kind of it was still quite optimistic. You know, there was still Bank of Islam, it was Bank of Islam. Um there were, I think they just made the amendments to facilitate the Ijara um mm-hmm. uh, I think the capital charges on uh Ijara League structures. And um there was, you know, relative optimism. And then it just kind of I think obviously the global financial crisis, but it just kind of really went down. A lot of um, windows shut down. Uh, you know the retail offerings. And and can you just walk me through that? The last I guess ten years, or I guess since the global financial crisis. And,
1: and- well, yeah, no, absolutely. So the UK Islamic finance market is not new. It's been there for a while. It has yeah. uh, UK governments passed, as you mentioned. You know um, they've been talking a lot. They they did they did a lot of um, changed a lot of the regulations and and introduced. Uh, changes to facilitate Islamic finance. And yes, uh, we have, um, I think at present, we have five Islamic banks in the UK, uh, and one one of them, which is fully fledged retail bank. Um, Although the the other ones do offer, I think, uh, Gatehouse, and um, I think Gatehouse bank offer, you know, some retail products, Uh, but since 2000, since the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, it's been a quite, it's been a very, um, I would say a mixed picture. Uh, I, I, I don't like using this phrase too much, but unfortunately, it has been very mixed. Like in 2014, we did see the sovereign, first sovereign sukuk from the UK government. It was a £200 million sukuk. It was very well oversubscribed. Mm. £200 million you know, is not a huge uh, issuance size, but it was very successful at the time. I think, however, um, that a lot of the local Islamic banks were not too happy in the sense that they didn't get a major role as a joint lead manager or an arranger on the deal. Mm. Um, so that kind of, I think, you, you mean like uh,
0: Islamic Bank of Britain or? Yeah, so even.
1: Yeah, so in 2014, um, that's when the government issued the sovereign sukuk. And then in, also in 2014, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um al Rayan from Qatar actually uh, purchased a stake in yep. the Islamic Bank of Britain, which was established in 2000, two I think, or yep. maybe just after 2000. Um, and they, every year they, or for the last, like say, seven eight years, uh, Masafarayan. I think now they hold about a 95 percent stake in uh, Al Rayyan Bank, so that's a subsidiary of yep. Masafarayan. Yep. Yeah. So since and then in 2016, you know, you know, the, the UK um, Export Credit Agency did some financing. I'm not sure if you're aware. I don't think this was very well publicised, but in 2000, I think it was in 2015 or 16, the UK Export Credit Agency um, backed or guaranteed the sukuk of Emirates Airline. Um, right. which was an interesting one um, so basically parts that Emirates was using for their airplanes had to come from the UK because it was a UK guaranteed UK virtually UK government guaranteed sukuk wow. um, interesting um, yeah so that was and then since I would the, the, I think one of the, the, the main challenges has been Brexit so you know in 2016 when we vote when we when the UK vote decided to leave or the, the, the UK population decided to vote leave the EU um, in June 2016, I think that had quite an adverse impact on sentiment towards, you know, things like Islamic finance, mm. you know, a lot of investors were still wondering because, you know, it, d- it did take a long time to sort out um, the whole Brexit situation. Yeah. And even now it's like, you know, people are still trying to work out, you know, there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of bureaucracy involved. So it's been a yeah, very... I think, you know, I, think,
0: I think there's other problems to, to figure out uh, and, and kind of Islamic finance will be... Open, indeed, indeed.
1: Indeed, so I mean, look, the UK government has worked hard. You know, they issued the, the second sovereign sukuk earlier this year, and they have been talking about, since I think, 2016 or earlier than that, about an alter. So, one of the one of the problems that the UK banks, UK Islamic banks, face here is that the cost of funding is extremely, extreme is a, is a lot higher than, say, the, the conventional counterparts, mm. um, and that's partly because a lot of the Islamic banks fund from their deposits, so the cost yep. of funding is a lot higher. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and this kind of comes back to the point that a lot of people, unfortunately, in the UK um, find that Islamic products, generally, generally speaking, are a little bit more expensive than, say, the conventional products.
0: Mm. Can you walk us through, you know, some of the, the windows? Because presumably the windows wouldn't have that cost of funds issue because, they, you know. Maybe... Well,
1: even, even, even um, with the withdrawal, so I'm sure your listeners are aware that um, HSBC Amana uh, closed down. Well, they only maintain branches and I think they only maintain a business in Malaysia and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, on so, the retail front. On the retail front, yeah, that's right. So they're no longer present in the UK. And even like other ones like Lloyd's and other mainstream conventional banks, I think a lot of them have wound down or really like scaled down their Islamic finance offering. So there's not that many alternatives for people to choose from. And the ones that even, even Al-Rayyan uh, have been closing a lot of their branches. I think they only maintain two branches in really high-end areas of London, mm-hmm. um, which is populated a lot by Qatari, rich Qatari citizens. Uh, their own properties in London um, and they've been withdrawing a little bit from the market. It, it seems as
0: if the industry is really, you know, I, I remember reading a lot of discussion around, you know, Islamic finance really being a an upper middle class to upper class phenomenon in, in the sense that where you have a lot of success is often in, you know, the capital market space. So, so larger, so transactions, but then, you know, in a lot of wealth management and, um you know, property financing. And I, I say this from my experience also in australia and would that be the case in the uk given that a lot of these um retail operations have shut down and and uh...
1: yeah i think i think that the part of the problem is the size of the market is quite small and you know the, i think the muslim population according to the last census is about three million in the uk uh, out of a population of about 75, 80 million people, so it's a very small segment of the population. And within that three million, there's—I uh, think I was mentioning before. I think you, if you want, to, you have to look at the history of Islamic finance in the UK. Unfortunately, a, a lot of people don't have a great experience of Islamic finance. Mm. I mean, in, in the eighties and nineties, there were there were there were stories of things like Hajj scams in Northern England. Yeah, um, yeah. Also,
0: uh, BCCI.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I think so. There, there's all these like you know. Which, which was an
0: Islamic bank, by the way. Yeah, it's exactly. A, but but um but the feeling, I think the, the trust. yeah,
1: so there's a bit, a bit of a big distrust. I think the, the bigger the bigger problem is that like I mentioned the cost of the product is the, is the is the bigger problem, you know, having to pay, you know, slightly more for the same product. I think you know people people on you know people can't afford that product. Um, and also the diversity of the products is pretty is is pretty Limited. non-existent. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty non existent well uh, let's, let's be very I'm being very blunt here that it's pretty non-existent. Yeah. And yeah. uh, the, the quality of the service at some of these Islamic banks is it's 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 not oh, fantastic. the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so, I can definitely feel it from from both sides. Like as a researcher, I remember um, you know some of the experiences that some people had going to the Islamic banks. Like I think I I only had one person that had a positive experience. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Even I, even
1: bank. I had a friend of mine who wanted to get a mortgage from I won't say which Islamic bank, but he he said it was a very 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 uh, long and painful experience for the amount of documentation they needed and the time they took in order to process them and i think towards the end he just gave up and just went with the conventional yeah um, and that happens
0: a lot and, and, and you do all this work for a more expensive product
1: yeah and, and even even then people question you know whether a, dim, a, re, a diminishing masharika is a real musharaka. you know is the bank taking? i mean this is not just idiosyncratic to the uk i mean is a diminishing masharika like a real masharika is the bank taking on a risk and you know, like I think I mentioned before, like a lot of these Islamic banks fund them from their deposits, so their cost of funding is a lot higher. And also, if you take into account the cost of a property in London, I think the average house price in London must be around something like four hundred fifty, four hundred seventy-five thousand pounds, which well, is
0: actually not too. Uh, bad. Uh, if, if, you is not, if you compare it, if you compare it's actually not too bad. I think Sydney is about a million.
1: Um, so um, I mean, if you if you consider what the average salary in London, I think is between twenty-seven to £30,000. Yeah. Right. Um, it's so it's, it's, yeah. It's
0: actually quite, yeah.
1: It's, so it's, 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 it's virtual. But London, it's its own little anomaly. Uh, I think yeah. in other areas of the UK, but again, like I mentioned, Al-Royan Bank, which is the only retail, fully fledged retail bank, Islamic bank in the UK, they've been closing a lot of their branches. Um, but but that,
0: that's not dissimilar to, you know, the way banking is, is moving, you know, more, more mobile and, and app related. Like,
1: you know, yeah, yeah. Him. I mean, I'm, I mean, over the last couple of years, we've seen the proliferation of all these e-wallet licenses and so-called digital challenger banks. Uh, not just in the Islamic space, but obviously it has been very successful ones in the UK, like Starling, Monzo, Revolut. Mm. Um, you know, some of these, some of some of these big, big f- fintech companies have got huge valuations, have received huge sums of investment. I think one of them is received like you know 50 million dollar investment from Goldman Sachs. So I mean, there is definitely interest on the e-wallet side. But yeah, the, with regards to the Islamic ones, I mean, there are so many Islamic uh, digital, so-called digital challenger banks. But I think if you, want, want, if you go into the details a little bit of a lot of these offerings, they're not really real banks because they're not regulated by the Bank of England, mm. which is our central bank here. They're regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Right. Um, so they're not authorized you know, to do things like lending or because they're not subject to the central bank uh, regulations on things like capital adequacy, yeah. a lot of the, a lot of these like are just like kind of apps to check like your budget and to check like your finances and you know kind of like you know for the younger generation I would say yeah.
0: It actually interests me um, because like the UK I mean you mentioned like three million for us in Australia that, that's a that's quite sizable. And so when we talk about the something finance industry in Australia and and then and I look at the UK experience and, and it hasn't and would you say it's a success I don't know if it's really taken No, in a, in no a I wouldn't level. say
1: it's a success at all. Mm. I wouldn't say um, I, I, it depends what you how you measure success and what you mean by success. I mean, in terms of like issuing sukuk and, you know, drawing international investments, attracting ins- investment from Muslim majority countries. Yes, I think maybe it has been successful in there or promoting the UK as a center of finance, institutional yeah. finance. And also, let's not forget, London is the home of like financial, a lot of financial services. So like law firms, asset managers, um, you know, Lloyds of London, which is one of the biggest you know, insurance players in the market. There are a lot of like these big, big uh, consultancy firms also based in London that provide Sharia-compliant financial services. Um, but again, these are all serving institutional clients. They're not really yep. serving the likes of uh, yourself and me, you know. And, and I think within this three million, I think we, we, I, the, I think one of the problems that we have is that we, we don't. The Muslim community in the UK. I, I don't like using this phrase, the Muslim community. I think there are communities of Human Muslims is. in the UK. Yeah, um, communities you know, you communities. yeah, so you can't compare, some, say, someone in East London to someone, I don't know, in uh, Bradford, for example, uh, both politically, socioeconomically, um, even their views on Islam, for example, you know, the yeah. different uh, schools of thought, Whether and, and, and I'm sure you know this more than others, that, um, you know, there are many interpretations uh, of what, you know, is permissible and what's not permissible. So uh, there, there is a diverse, diverse range of thoughts and uh, circumstances.
0: And, and what about Islamic asset management? Because you know, London has always been a place where you know a lot of Gulf uh, investors would typically buy a massive. I, I think the Shard, I think, is a
1: Islamic. indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's uh, and a lot, a lot of, of a landmark kind of. Yeah, yeah. So like, like Chelsea Barracks, for example, which Chelsea is a huge Barracks. property. Yeah. Um, the Shard of London, which was financed in a Sharia-compliant manner. Um, indeed, a lot of a lot of investment from the Gulf countries, Gulf Arab countries, has come into London in the property sector. I think slowly the is. it there many family offices, or is it more? I think it, I think it's a mixture. So you have family offices, and you have like private individuals as well, um, and you know, you know people from Gulf countries, like Gulf entities want, and also like you have these private equity funds from the Gulf investing in property in London. I think a lot of them now are looking outside of London as well. So like areas like Manchester, for example, or Birmingham. Uh, where the UK government wants like more investment to go into these kind of second cities and the third cities of the UK. Yeah. However, one one thing that is interesting is that you're starting to see more sophisticated investors. Um, although it's very very, it's still quite a small. small you mean you mean number. from the
0: local communities?
1: Uh, I mean from the Gulf countries. All oh, right. Yep, yep. From the Gulf countries. It's um,
0: still very much inbound.
1: In yeah, and a lot of it is, goes into property. A lot of it yep. still goes into London property. Um, high-end London property um, but slowly you are seeing more like examples of like um, you know more sophisticated investment but yeah it, it, it's good it, it's in drips and drabs unfortunately. What about the local
0: market are, are there many funds uh, that the local you know the retail investor can invest in? Uh,
1: honestly not there's not that many that they can invest into I mean there are some saving pro- savings products at Al Alrayan Bank and Gatehouse Bank and there there are these savings products but in terms of the actual offering there's not that much that they can invest into uh i was i was just going to say one of one of the more exciting things is um i'm not sure if your listeners are aware but schroder's which is a mainstream conventional asset manager here in the uk um at the end of last year they launched their global islamic uh, equity fund which is available to retail clients as well as institutional and uh they uh set up this fund and i think it's Something I, I'm not. I need to check what its AUM is today. But uh, at the time when it launched last year, it was like already at 120 or 150 million pounds. Right. And and I, and I really do think like the, the the key to make the Islamic finance market more liquid is to get more of these mainstream asset managers to come in. Yeah. I think once you get more mainstream asset managers, not just from Schroders or but from say like, you know, the likes of BlackRock or somebody like that, to put money into this market. Um, not only will it make the market more liquid, which is good for the market, but also it it puts more impetus on to create more products and more asset classes. Mm.
0: Um, yeah, I, I just find it interesting because, like in Australia, you know, going back to your comment around the lack of products, like product development is really difficult. It's so challenging given all the tax limitations, etc. But you know, in the UK, where you don't have that, it's it's interesting how you still have a quite a limited product scope, both in financing and and in essence, well,
1: management. I think I think the other thing you got to look at is the financial literacy amongst a lot of these Muslim communities. Yeah, that's a very- um I think financial literacy, unfortunately, I think, and I, I'm talking generally, not just specifically mm-hmm. to the Muslim community, I think it's quite poor because um, to to, we're not really taught it at school. And you only realise, like, you know, once you in debt yourself at university, like you come with this huge bill after university uh, of debt, and then, you know, you take a loan out or you take out um, a mortgage or something, And So we're not really taught about like, you know, about financial literacy until much later on in our life until it's too late. You know, things like pensions or like uh, savings products or investment products. However, I think with the pandemic, I think one of the interesting things and I'm sure you guys have noticed this in Australia and in other countries in the world is that, you know, seeing more democratization of um, financial services. So, for example, you're seeing more trading done on trading apps and stuff. And people taking more of an interest in the financial markets. Um, So, but again, the 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 financial literacy is a key point here. And and and, and so you have I'm just talking about normal financial conventional financial literacy, and then bringing the Islamic uh, financial literacy. It's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, Yeah, bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I think this is a bit of a challenge too uh how do you address that that's a good question i think the only way we can there are a number of answers uh how we can address that but i think generally speaking it's um it's a generational challenge that one it's going to take a bit of time and and
0: would you see the direction of the uk summit finance industry do you see i mean obviously i think probably you know the high-end institutional private um institutional money is probably going to continue to come into the uk or london specifically but, you know, in, in terms of the retail side, where do you see the next five? So
1: days? I think I think one of the, uh, so like I said, I think things like, so, well, I think on the institutional side, yes, I think, that, yeah, it will continue to be there. And you'll you'll continue to get investment in the property, in the high-end real estate property sector and a few of the other sectors in the UK. But mostly it will be focused around London. But in terms of the retail, look, I mean, you're getting more um, uh, fintech players coming to the market. So, for example, in the UK, we have uh, Yielders, which is a crowd uh, equity. um which is a property crowdfunding platform and you have other property crowdfunding platforms coming online. You have um, uh, many other fintechs, which are like equity crowdfunding, crowdfunding platforms. Yeah, like we mentioned, these e-wallet licenses, you're getting robo-advisors. So Wahid Invest is very, um, yep. is very <laughs> present. And it's very present, although they're, US, they're a U.S. robo-advisor, they are present in the U.K. Yep. And, you know, they're launching, uh, I mean, this is all publicly available. So it's nothing... Um, I'm revealing here, but uh, you know they're launching. They're about to launch, or soon, soon they'll be launching their digital bank. Um, you know they're they, they're working on a Takaful product, uh, and also they just recently launched. I'm not sure if your listeners are aware, but they launched an equity crowd, equity crowdfunding platform, uh, which allows. And um, it's kind of like a VC fund, kind of like a venture capital fund, which will allow uh, certain certain investors who have a certain risk appetite to invest in you know, Sharia-compliant startups. Um, uh, And also there are things like um, uh, corporate financing. I think that's one area that needs to be served a lot is corporate financing. So a lot of corporate, small and medium-sized enterprises, you know, there aren't that many um, competitively priced, if I want to call it that, options for people to access Sharia-compliant competitive financing. So I think that's one. And yeah, the asset management space will be interesting. Um, I think one area that hasn't really been served well by by the industry is Takaful yeah it's like,
0: um, it was an interesting one I, I always wondered why that really hasn't taken off given that
1: um well it's it's, it's, it's a it's difficult a, one because outside of malaysia and saudi arabia you don't really get that many yeah, providers not at all
0: and you think, i think and is a real value-add type of product i think it's a really interesting you know i, th- I think it's, it's definitely a, a, a different product to your normal know, conventional uh, insurance
1: well yeah i think even like you know I, I don't know what your view is but like people you know some People are completely against, you know, life insurance or conventional insurance, completely from a Sharia perspective. But, you know, some, sometimes some people are forced to take, you know, insurance. And I, I think this is the part of the problem, right, is that because there isn't that many alternatives for people to take. So they're, they're kind of forced to take like a conventional product, even though, you know, it may go against their principles of their faith or, you know, yeah. the investing principles. But I think, yeah, I think like things like Takaful really need to be addressed. Um, there were some Takaful providers, I think, a few years ago, um, but I don't think they, they, they
0: shut down. I think from yeah. they
1: shut. Yeah, they, they, I don't think they could um, come up with a good business model. Yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, no. I, I'm look. I think it's going to be a mixed. It'll be. I think it's. I'm, I'm optimistic on the UK uh, in terms of innovation. Um, I mean, it sounds like there's
0: a bit going on, You're like you know.
1: I mean, look the the, the bank the Bank of England has been developing this alternative liquidity fund. Um, that will allow our Islamic banks to to borrow from them from the from the central bank in order to right. fund their fund their um, activities. So in time and in principle, that should make Islamic products more pari pursue, uh, which means like they should be the same to conventional products um, in terms of price. But yeah, I mean in terms of like the Islamic banks, the incumbent Islamic banks, I don't really see them you know shifting their strategy too much. And if you look at the shareholders of who owns the Islamic banks in the UK. I mean, you know, Masraf um, uh, al Rayan is owned by Qatar, uh, you know, Gatehouse has got Kuwaiti influence there, BLME has a Kuwaiti influence, Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank, um, which in fact, they have scaled down a lot of their operations in the UK. So uh, it's a very mixed picture, I would say.
0: Yeah. And probably the tra- trajectory will be similar to the, you know, what's going on from their parent companies.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I think yeah. uh, so. It's indicative of what's happening in the GCC, right? With mm. um, consolidation, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, consolidation happening yeah, uh, in the in the GCC. But yeah, no, I mean, look, there there is some innovation going on. Even if we go outside of Islamic finance, there are some interesting tech startups in, in, in Muslim-led or Muslim-oriented tech startups in the UK. Mm. um so for example there's this one uh which is called muzmatch i'm not sure if you're, fam- if you're listening, <laughs> familiar with i've heard one. about it a lot <laughs> um so it's a very successful uh startup you know it's a very guy... uh
0: funny advertising as well i think it's...
1: yeah exactly very innovative ad- advertising um i think the one with adele and uh lionel richie uh <laughs> uh was was quite clever um and i mean I, I think the guy who must have. i think they have about three or four million users on their platform wow. so um it's been quite a successful uh, startup. Um, and I mean, there are other f- interesting things going on in the halal ecosystem in the UK, but again, it's, it's very small. It's very, very domestic, very idiosyncratic. It's not gonna, uh, for the foreseeable future at least, you know, cause, or grab niche. the headlines. Yeah, yeah, it's very quite niche, yeah.
0: And, and yourself, bro, uh, any projects that you're working on currently that, um, that, you should write a book, bro, seriously. You know, the, the coverage that you've had across the region and, and, and experience.
1: So look, I'm I'm work I work I write these articles uh, for Salam Gateway, which is one of my publications. I think I should forget to mention, I shouldn't forget to mention that I'm a freelance journalist. So I am serving uh, different publications, but Salam Gateway is one of my primary uh, publications that I do write for regularly. You know, covering things in the Islamic economy, uh, mainly covering Islamic finance, Islamic fintech, mm. uh, and, and that's a global mandate. So looking at things, so for example, I'm, I'm writing a, I'm writing about I think. Uh, this is publicly available anyway, um, Spur Bank, uh, which is Russia's biggest commercial bank, Ru- Russia's I think Russia's biggest commercial bank or state-owned bank, um, is launching. It's the country's first uh, exchange-traded fund, uh, or has launched the exchange-traded fund. Um, so I managed to speak to their head of Islamic finance there and speak to him and ask him about their strategy for Islamic finance. And yeah, there are, there are some interesting other innovations going on uh, in the market. But I think Compared to where we were, say, about five or six years ago, I think it's going to be a lot more fragmented, uh, which is a a shame um, because, you know, it it doesn't encourage cross-border activity or, you know, cross-border, you know, innovation or collaboration. Everyone's kind of like doing their own thing. Yeah, Um, but in in terms of my specific projects, yeah, no, I'm just continuing writing these articles. Um, I think one day I'd like to write a book about the political economy of Islamic finance. I mean, I could talk to you for hours, uh, Iran. I'm sure your listeners haven't got hours. We'll leave that for uh, another
0: episode. I think that would <laughs> be really interesting, by the
1: way. Yeah, no, I mean, like, um, just writing about the political economy of is- Islamic finance and looking how, how the industry came about. Because um, uh, maybe just we can finish on this point. I think, like, I think I mentioned before, maybe this, on this episode or maybe another one, we're, we're at a little bit of an inflection point in the sense that in the UAE, for example, they're, they're telling a lot of, the, well, they, they've instructed all of their Islamic banks and anyone doing any kind of Sharia compliant business in the UAE to adopt AOFI standards. And the central bank of the UAE, via its Higher Sharia Authority, which was set up in 2018, has been strictly, strictly enforcing AOFI standards um, on you know things like sukuk issuances uh, and any kind of like lending or any kind of like activity. Um, and the market's having a real challenge in address in dealing with this, um, you know, enforcing AOFI standards onto all their transactions. So I think it's kind of an interesting thing how we're going from like you know for the last say 30 years or whenever. Islamic finance really started to you know t- come more into the forefront we're going from now form more into more of a substance and you yeah. know things like Makassar da Sharia yeah. is playing a role and you know the the, the rise of ESG and SRI um, is yeah. raising more questions and looking at the convergence and things like that so yeah I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic on the future of the, the industry from that perspective.
0: Fantastic Thank you so much, bro, for that um, amazing discussion. And um, I think we're going to have to get you back and and we'll have another chat around that and some of the, um, the drivers. And what's actually driving the Islamic finance industry? I think it will be super interesting.
1: Absolutely. Happy to be on
0: that. Awesome. Thank you so much, bro. And we'll catch you next time.